0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, welcome to the Entrepreneurship and Leadership channel of the New Books Network. My name is Mark McCurgo and I'm very pleased to be one of the hosts of this channel, along with my colleague Richard Lucas. Today we're talking about Neil Usher's new book, Elemental Change, uh, and the subtitle is Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still. And I'm sure anyone who's been involved in entrepreneurship and leadership will recognise that challenge of everything's moving around. How do you know what to do next when it won't stand still long enough for you to see it? So, Neil, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Please introduce yourself for us. Thank you. Hi,
1: Mark. Delighted
0: to be here. Thank you very much. So, yes, Neil
1: Usher, um, I've been in... What can loosely be described as corporate real estate for the last 30 or so years, um, what that has actually involved for the majority of that time is looking off the large property portfolios for um, occupier clients from a variety of different sectors in a, in a, a large number of countries around the world. And a, a core component, if you like, of that sort of responsibility is is migrating people from one type of workplace to another So effectively leading large and very complex change projects um, in in a variety of different cultures and settings around the world. So um, although I approach this from essentially a sort of property and workplace point of view, what I hope we can cover this morning really are are sort of challenges in relation to change that are generic and are applicable in in any sector, any industry or, or any environment.
0: Absolutely. And that was one of the things that impressed me about the book was how many lessons you've got that are very, very widely applicable in this book. And then also lessons that you don't often come across. So, so I'm very excited to have you as our guest today. So uh, how did you come to write this book, Elemental Change? Neil?
1: Um, I'd written the first book, Elemental Workplace, published in 2018. Um, and, and I'd actually started down the road of thinking about and, and just um, I actually did a presentation at a conference, even um, sort of thinking about writing a second workplace book. And then I thought, well, hold, hold on a minute, what, what are you doing? You've, you've already written a workplace book. Why, why are you writing another one? Um, and then I thought, well, what else have I done really in all of this time? And and really, change became a you know very quickly a sort of subject that I thought, well, yeah, this is this is something that I've spent my virtually my entire working life practicing. Um, perhaps I can apply a very similar type of framework to the one I created in the elemental workplace, which is dealing with you know, tangible realities um, into something a little more ethereal and a little more difficult to get our arms around that being changed. So can I can I take a very similar approach to to something that's a lot harder to pin down? Um, and you know, I felt when I was originally sort of just kind of thinking about the shape and structure of the book that that was likely to be possible. So set myself the challenge. Um, I can't say there weren't moments during um, sort of writing it that I wondered why on earth I'd actually set myself the challenge because it's a lot more difficult, I think, to write about change than it was something so sort of evident to us in in respect to the physical workplace. Um, But at the same time, I think it really tested my experience and my knowledge of the subject made me um, evaluate and question things I'd done, why I'd done them. Um, and I think you'll see from some of the little anecdotes through the book, most of the stories I tell about my particular experience are usually those where something went horribly wrong or, or failed or I'd misjudged the situation. So, you know, hopefully some idea really that I'd, I'd learned from what I'd been doing over those years. Yeah,
0: so all good learning there. And great to have that personal experience coming in. So you did the elemental workplace. And now you've done elemental change. What's this elemental thing then? Tell us about that.
1: Um, when when I was thinking about the workplace book uh, initially, I felt that if, if you were a sort of new entrant to the field, um, and there seemed to be a lot of people coming into that particular field at the time in around about 2016, 17, um, that it was actually really difficult to get a, a sort of structured overview of the subject really. What, what would be the ideal kind of beginner's guide? So, you know, the minute you start looking at you know the the workplace on on the internet you can be absolutely swamped with information how do you know whether any of it is is is, you know is good advice How, how do you sort it out really what sort of filters do you apply and it could take you an awful long time but i also found when i was doing my sort of research really and i used to do that research through holding um discussion forums Um, I actually found that those people who'd been practicing the subject for a long time also, because they were so sort of knee deep in it, they found it really difficult to step back and take that overview. And I thought, well, actually, while this might have started out as an idea for a new entrance to this field, it's actually a useful refresher for all of those people who've been involved in it for years in terms of just, just stepping outside of it for a minute and looking back at it. So... I'm quite fanatical about structure and frameworks. I like to see things drawn out in that way. I'm quite sort of spatial in the way that I organize knowledge and information. So it seemed like the, the natural step to take for me. And I guess all of the, the agonies I went through with writing the first book, well, yeah, is there enough structure around this? Have I got this? Have I got this set out in the right way that would make it easy for someone to understand? So the elemental approach is all about that framework. I'm using the, the sort of start with why principles, really, in terms of looking at the, 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 the sort of philosophy and the background to it all, the, the sort of questioning that we might go through. The, the second part of it being the preparation for what we're about to do. And then the third part of the what being the, the actual delivery. Um, and I think between first book and second book, my, my sort of appreciation of what the elemental structure is ha, has grown somewhat. Uh, and I think it's applicable to to many different fields. I think taking that framework is is it's quite easy to look at the approach and and consider that you could you could apply it well beyond workplace and change. Um, so if anybody thinks of anything they think that framework could apply to, then I'm, then I'm very happy to to have a conversation about it.
0: Well, yeah, we'll come back to the the elemental framework, which I think is one of the really strong pieces about this book uh, later on. Uh, first of all, just think, let's talk about who should read this book. Who do you want to read it? Who do you think is going to find it valuable?
1: Well, I try to write it for everyone, really. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about a particular type of practitioner in mind. I think sort of you know, gen- general management, um, because just about everybody in some kind of organisational environment is going to be leading change, whether it's, you know, whether it's got a daft project name or, or whether it's just a, a small scale change, they're going to be leading change. They, they're going to be trying to make something happen. And so I think it's it's applicable across all, all sort of strata of business and all, all levels of management and leadership really. Um, and, I, and I set out to re- really not to pigeonhole it. Um, I also set out as far as possible for it to be as timeless as possible. So I'm hoping that it does stand the test of time. Um, and try to make it sort of as, as entertaining as possible as well. Really, I, I, I had to read quite a lot of books about change in, in the research, and um, I can honestly say I I found that difficult at times. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, actually a lot of the a lot of the things we lead in 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 organisations in in terms of change can actually be quite enjoyable. So so why shouldn't reading a book about change be be enjoyable too? Um, so I've, I've tried to make it amusing where I can and to, and, to, and to keep it moving at a pace just to make it a, a good read as well, if that's if,
0: if that comes through. Absolutely. I think it does. So the subtitle is Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still. And, and lots of books are about making stuff happen. But I think the interesting, particularly interesting part of your book is the second half of that, Making things ha- Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still. So what's the kind of what's the thing with when nothing stands still? What's the what challenges does that bring? And maybe what advantages does that bring to? Um, yeah,
1: it's when I was reading sort of a lot of the material on change before I started writing, I found that it often treated our organisation environments as something of a laboratory. Um, And I've written this from very much a practitioner's point of view. You know, I'm not from a university or a or a consultancy, but actually someone who was sort of actually you know taking organisations through it at the the sharp end really. Um, And I felt that a lot of what I was reading didn't reflect the incredibly messy reality of the situation we're in. So when I was looking at the sort of front end of that, the the philosophical part of change, and I've, a lot of change books gloss over that. But I think it's really important for us to get a sort of philosophical grounding in what change is and what it means. Um, is the is the sort of interconnectedness of all things, and the way that um, and the way that everything around us is 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 moving um, and constantly evolving and constantly adapting. Um, so, as you suggest, I think it is both a a problem and and a really exciting opportunity. It's a problem in the sense that everything we're taught about planning is, is therefore in question. Um, and I stress in the book, this is much more about preparation than it is planning. Planning is something we do sort of quite late in the game, but it's preparation is, is, is everything. Um, but also in terms of the opportunity, the, it's, it's almost like when we're sort of looking at a situation in front of us with everything moving, gaps will appear. That's the uncertainty. That's the space we need to step into. And if we think about organisations as sort of structural beasts for a moment, they they are hell bent on on squashing uncertainty. They try to rid themselves of uncertainty. They try try to to create perfect information to enable people to plan. They create linear paths, um, you know, with dependencies. And and actually, what happens in those sorts of environments is they're you know un, sort of unconsciously really they're squashing the opportunities for creativity and innovation because if we have a certain path ahead of us, then really nothing exciting or interesting is likely to happen because we know exactly what's going to happen. And so consequently, I think the the fact that it's messy actually makes for a much more interesting, much more exciting world. It makes for a much more exciting environment inside an organization. But we have to be prepared to to, to be in that state. We have to be prepared for for things to happen that we don't expect are going to happen, um, to be prepared for that, but actually, to see those things as opportunities, not a threat, we're so sort of you know risk-averse and so so you know committed to uh, risk mitigation a lot of the time. I suggest in there that we use the same. We should use the same model that we look at for for um, assessing risk to assess opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that done in that way. I've never seen an opportunity map created. Um, actually, we need to we need to sort of flip our approach almost. Be be cognizant of risk but actually understand that with every risk comes an opportunity, and it's the opportunity that we need to grasp. And that all comes from uncertainty. So an uncertain situation is is actually a good thing, and is something in that sort of messy environment to be grasped and to, to run with.
0: So in the beginning of the book, the opening section, which you call the opening gambit, rather nicely, uh, you you set out a few myths of change that you want to You want to bust and set aside right at the start. I think that's a very interesting uh, way to tackle it, and a nicely, nicely kind of confrontational uh, and firm way into this topic. It would be great if you talk about some of those myths and why you think we can set them aside.
1: Yeah, I I think the sort of (laughs) the worst one of all really is that people hate change, Um, and it's usually said with a sort of you know in a kind of uh, well, people hate change. You know, It's, it's it's said as a sort of a you know, just a, a catch-all, really, a dismissive excuse or reason for, for not doing some or something, or for something not having worked out the way it was intended to work out. Um, and what I try and stress in the sort of just beyond the opening gambit, when we look at it from a philosophical point of view, is that change is actually the essence of being a human being. Uh, if we think about our own personal lives, just about everything that we're in, you know, we we're, we're we're concerned with in our personal lives is about making things better, improving things, doing things differently. We're, we're doing it all the time. Um, we're always looking for inspiration. We're looking for ideas. We, we try new things. And we might create patterns. I think this is where the confusion comes in. You know, Human beings are pattern-seeking creatures, but the, the reason we create patterns is that it gives us brain space and, and physical space to think about and do other things that might be more interesting. So we tend to impose the patterns in our life on the things that are a bit dull bit uninteresting likely to be repetitive um that's quite convenient because we can't have absolutely everything up for grabs at all times so we do have to do a little bit of filtering and a little bit of uh, assessment really as to what's interesting and you know i can put a pattern on this over here because it's quite boring whereas that gives me the space and time to think about this stuff over here um, and i think we get you know it's that as i mentioned in there that you know every time i hear that expression and um, you know a little piece of me dies and i just I'm, I'm always astounded that, that sort of scene. I, I hear it from senior leaders as well in that sort of dismissive way. Oh, uh, well, you know, it's never going to work because people hate change. It's like, oh, come on, you know, just, just think about your own life for a moment. And that's one of the things I try and stress in the book is that, is that you know, life is not necessarily different. The other side of that you know, real or metaphorical revolving door that we go through when we step inside of an organization. And I think, you know, in, in the past, we've seen that we dress differently, we use language inside the revolving door that we, we don't use outside. Um, I think probably the lockdown experience and the COVID experience is going to have actually removed a lot of that from our lives. We're going to be much more comfortable with the interchange between personal and organizational life, at least for a, for a period of time. Hopefully that won't sort of set in again. Um, but, but I think that's why Traditionally and typically, we've thought of change as being something something different, to be handled in a different way, the other side of the revolving door. And I'm suggesting that we can often resolve in our minds a lot of what it is about change and a lot of the ways we approach change in our organizational life by just thinking about our own personal lives.
0: Yes. And another of the things you tackle in that section, which the pandemic might also have helped to bust, is this thing that people say that the pace of change is increasing um yes i mean i I think there's
1: there's probably been a a lot of um emails over the last year that have begun with you know in in these unprecedented times in these times of unprecedented change and i'm not even quite sure where unprecedented change as a phrase came from um because i think you know the pace of change has always been relative to the sort of societal conditions at the time um, and I don't necessarily think that the pace of change is is any different now. And what I suggest in the book is actually that we have become that much more able to deal with change because we have that much more information available to us, resources, channels available to us to deal with it. So in many ways, if we can in some way prove that the pace of change has increased, then then so has the pace of humanity in that sense and that we, we are still in a sort of fairly appropriate um, sort of pairing, if you like, all, uh, as we have been through through human history. Um, you know, we can't look back several hundred years and, and think, gosh, you know, nothing was particularly changing then because they ah. didn't have the internet and they didn't have automobiles and trains and planes and, you know, all the other sorts of things we have in our society. No, I mean, you know, there have been seismic changes in history that, that, that we probably couldn't even contemplate happening now. Um, and they all happened without any of those resources or, or any of that means of transmitting information that we that we have today. So I think it's always been relative. I think yeah. our, our abilities to, to understand and 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 handle change have always been in step with with society and with the sort of supposed pace of change. So I think it's one of those sort of empty statements that really has no, no basis in reality. You can't prove it in any way at all. I think there are actually some really interesting arguments that the pace of innovation has actually slowed, um, even even with modern technology. Um, particularly love the story about the uh, you know the, the the automatic washing machine being far more important in society than the internet in terms of what it actually what it actually brought about in terms of you know liberating you know many women from a from a life of domestic drudgery and enable them to start to pursue careers. Um, I mean, I think some of those stories and some of those arguments are fascinating and, and worthy of some serious thinking about.
0: Absolutely. Um, another thing you, you mentioned in that section, which I liked very much, was the to turn, debunk the idea that we change according to a predictable change curve or something like that. Um,
1: yes, the grieving curve has sort of has become the change curve over time. Um, and i couldn't actually find anything in the literature um i'm sure there is something but i couldn't find it with the the time i had available that, that sort of showed how something that was applicable in a completely different environment suddenly sort of became, or, or sort of rather than suddenly sort of became over time something that we then ascribe to the, the way that change occurs um uh, you know the, the the, the grieving curve was a, was a fantastic piece of work and it was appropriate to the, the, the environment that it was related to. But to say that it's somehow appropriate to all change, I think is, you know, fundamental misunderstanding of what change is and, and how we lead it. You know, the first stage being denial. I mean, you know, I know sometimes the odd change in an organization might might raise an eyebrow or two or be a little bit of a surprise, but but the fact that sort of you know to assume that just about every change that we lead in an organization will instantly result in mass denial is is just is just entirely wrong. Um so I think you know it's it's a useful reference point as many models of change have been over time. Um but I think it also you know, it completely plays against the complexity, the, the the messiness, if you like, of the of the environment we're in and the environment we're moving into. And uh, you know, if, if everything moved in that very predictable line and we knew that ex- that was exactly how change worked every single time, then there probably would have been no need for for my book or or many of those that came before it.
0: Uh, so you're saying that change doesn't follow a predictable curve, um, and you're also saying, I think that, but that fact should not paralyze us and on the contrary that that fact is a is a useful thing to be aware of as we start to tackle projects of change
1: yeah it's a liberator it, it, it absolutely is i think once we can sort of get that curve out of our mind but you know I, i'm not sure it's possible to to erase it from our memory entirely but i think if we can get some of these entrenched attitudes like um people hate change like everything Happens in this predictable curve. If we can somehow dispense with them entirely, you know, I, I think we'll start to really see the opportunities that are unfolding before us. And uh, you know, to, to a degree, if we if we can't shift those thoughts, then we're beaten before we've started. You know, we're we're already we're already losing. Um, and and I'm not sure how. You recover when when you when you're in that frame of mind, and you you can't shift those things. I think it's, that's why I dealt with those things quite early in the book because I think it's really important to say, look, good piece of work on the grieving curve, but you know it's applicable to a totally different sin- situation. Leave it where it is and forget it, and and let's now look at the opportunities that are unfolding before us.
0: So the main book, the main body of the book, is into three parts. You have the first part, which is about reflection. The second part about preparation and the third part about action. And uh, it might be useful to start then with the beginning, your reflection part. Why are we doing this? So so why do you start there then? What's the what's key about that as a beginning?
1: I think it's important for us to, to understand what change is. You know, a lot of change texts just jump straight in. Right, let's do some stuff, let's get on with it. You know, follow this 10-point plan or, or this acronym and then and, and everything will be all right. Um, I think the fact that books are still being written about change after all of this time suggests that it's not quite all right. And, and it very rarely is all right because clearly we're, we're all feeling somehow that um, a slightly different approach is needed. Um, but I thought it was important, and and it is the sort of part one is kind of the, the slimmest part of the book, if you like. But I thought it was important to understand the the infrastructure, if you like, of change. What, what what what's the grounding? The groundwork is our understanding of what change is and some of those concepts, just so we can understand what we're dealing with, really. Rather than you know, if we if we jump straight into getting prepared and actually delivering change, then 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 we're not necessarily sure, um, you know, the, the reasons why we're doing a lot of this. So I just wanted to get that all cleared up, really, um, and just make sure that, yeah, okay, I've, I've got my head in the right place now. Now you can talk to me about how I make change happen. Um, I'm not going to be sort of scratching my head in places wondering why certain things are the way they are or that or why they're happening the way they're happening.
0: So you start off in that section by talking about um, uh, the idea of everything being flux and the perpetual Beta, tell us about that.
1: Um, yeah, I'm I'm a bit sort of in awe of the uh, the ancient Greeks. I think, given the sort of you know, relative simplicity of their society, they that sort of period of thought was was quite incredible. And uh, and that comes from a um, a, a writer called Heraclitus, who he was writing in the sixth century BC. And he gave us the the lovely expression, um, which I'm paraphrasing, but you you never step twice in the same river as in everything is moving on and, and we are moving on as well, that every situation we, we experience is, you know, even if it looks familiar and it's in the same organization or the same kind of piece of work, that things will have moved on, that we are constantly subject to influences and, and, and sort of pressures that will be changing us and changing people around us and the situation around us. And so it's important to understand that, that we're operating in that fluid in that fluid state. Um, if indeed you can actually call it a state um because it is always something that's becoming rather than something that it, that is being um and, and you know the, the the rest of the chapter really looks at sort of what the implications of that are in terms of interconnectedness um and, and and considering really that um you know from a sort of universal level and universal truth like that that we will then get down to to, to some of the you know more, more localized issues like thinking about our values and thinking about um, then, then where the pressures might be against change, like sort of inertia and, and complacency. So it's it's to it's to give us all really a it's it's to put everybody on the same level before we begin almost. It's like a it's like a just 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 to agree some concepts, agree some ideas, agree what's happening, um, and almost say right, okay, so we've got this infrastructure sorted now. Now we can actually look at uh, now we can actually look at leading change properly.
0: Yes, I've heard that Herakles thing stated uh slightly alternatively as you can't step in the same pond twice either because <laughs> uh, if people get get fixed up on that the river is moving and of course that's part of her position but as you say it's not the whole part of it because the person's moving as well the person's moving on yeah. and the person having stepped in the pond uh, you know then the second time they're the person who stepped in it once before um, so uh, and we,
1: we do forget sometimes that we're changed by these situations you know, the situations we're in we' we're, we're inherently conflicted because any change initiative that we're leading we're we're usually involved in ourselves so we're never when we're, we're never sitting outside of all this we're not we're not sort of like an old style, you know, medieval general sort of, you know, standing on the hillside, directing troops, watching things unfold. We're, we're, we're involved. We're, we're in the mix the whole time, which means it's constantly changing us. Um, and, and any change initiative that we will lead, we, we will emerge differently from it as well. We will have been shaped by it. Um, you know, we, we will have had some positive and some negative experiences. We will have encountered situations we hadn't anticipated. Uh, and the person that we are that emerges from this this initiative will be will be different from the person who
0: started it so towards the end of that section you start talking about uh, inertia resistance and complacency which i think are used as great excuses by people to <laughs> to not really do stuff so 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 what what do you want us to think then about resistance and inertia um, i think i think
1: these things will emerge and i and i'm not suggesting for a minute that that uh, you know it, it, it's all easy um you know nobody said it would be easy and it and it isn't um i think it's important to understand the differences between between you know sort of the sort of natural processes if you like of, of um of of, of the, the sort of natural inertia that often occurs where people are processing new ideas or suggestions um and not to necessarily assume that it automatically that it's resistance but i'm also very aware that i've i've encountered you know, and been subject to many change initiatives where all of the language is very sort of resistance oriented it's all about sort of mm-hmm. overcoming resistance and bulldozing the way through and and it, and it starts to use um a, a whole lexicon if you like of, of resistance mitigation um, but really, you know, it, our goal is very rarely 100%. And I think people often get bogged down in, in dealing with the outliers. And actually, some of those outliers may have really important insight to offer us. You know, they shouldn't just be dismissed. Sometimes those who are actively resistant um, also are that way because they care enough to be that way. Uh, and, we, and we should listen. And we should, we should understand that they, they have a view. Because in all of these initiatives, we're the easiest people to convince that it's a good idea. We convinced ourselves it's a good idea because we thought it was actually worth starting. So we did that some time ago. Um, But actually, for a lot of people, they're processing it, they're thinking about it, and they may may well have something that would suggest that we haven't thought about something, um, that we haven't thought the implications through properly, and we have to listen. And if people want to be deliberately resistant, if they want to be, uh, if they want to remain on the outside, we probably just need to give them time. Um, but but if we if we get obsessed and think that the goal of a change initiative is is 100% compliance or, or or sort of you know getting 100% of people on board, we will get unduly sucked into dealing with those who are probably taking a little more time over this. And so I think we just need to be realistic about it and 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 allow. Other natural processes to convert those people, they will, they will see change occurring with their colleagues, with others around them, and they will form the ideas in their own mind in time. Um, and this is really always a problem with, and you see a lot in property in you know, a workplace where you, you physically are relocating. So things do have to change because of a certain date but if you think about sort of um, IT applications and IT large-scale IT installations, there's very often a period of parallel running when when a when a system is moving from from one platform to another, to get people used to that transition, to allow people to change in their own time, to give them the knowledge and the resources to allow them to change themselves, um, and and to, to understand the opportunities that are that are opening up before them, um, and and so. We just have to be really careful that we don't just assume that everything, you know, blanket, is resistance. It's very often not resistance. It's people dealing with this in, in their own time.
0: Yes. An old friend once said to me that people, people, they resist change, but they respond to making progress with things. Yeah, that's a good way to <laughs> so, put <point> it, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think I, I like you, the, what you're talking about there, of the language of resistance ends up being very hard work. I think, and uh, you know you see everything as a sort of counter counter push, and there are other ways to address it, and other ways to talk about it, and other ways to think about it that maybe are more inclined towards progress and um, uh, success and signs of uh, signs of moving on and so on. Um, in the second the second part of the book, preparation uh how are we going to do it is the it's the kind of key question there and i you introduced this idea of a change operating system uh which i think is a very nice framework with with six key bits uh share a bit about that with us um i was
1: i was considering um you know how we prepare all, all based around preparation rather than planning so you know where, where we where we really don't always know what's happening we don't have perfect information that that everything is messy ahead of us so how do we make sure we're always prepared um and i and i was thinking through what i thought the sort of components of that were and i'd used um the sort of the the uh the, the the idea of the six in the previous book and i thought well i wonder if it does map to this and i and i was comfortable that it did in terms of the the opportunity itself, which we've covered, um, developing the vision that's needed to make sure that everybody that's involved shares that uh, that shares that ambition and that potential destination, um, the evidence we need, and I really focus on sort of both data and story um, because they're 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 intertwined, and we can't I don't think we can separate them it would be wrong not to consider leadership because we're talking about leading change, but I've, I've sort of not necessarily just jumped straight in at leadership. I think it's one of those components. Um, Then I look at trust, um, which I think is the sort of the, the essential kind of, um, you know, sort of lubricant in the machine, if you like, in terms of just making sure that relationships sort of move in the right direction in the right ways and then all of those other resources that we need, and the plan is in the resources. The plan is is one of those resources, um, but we will need a plan for short run activity, medium term, long term activity, depending on the initiative. We might need several plans. We might need to change those plans. But the, but this is all about preparation. This is all about being ready for for what we for what we what we don't know. We don't know a lot of the time, um, as much as what we do know. Um, so this is being ready. This is this. The operating system is applicable to any, any change initiative anywhere at any time. Um, and all of these components will need to be in place. There is an interrelationship between them. They, they, they support or mitigate against one another, so it's important to balance them. And the neat use of the spider chart, I think, in these instances is to be able to measure where we think we are and where we need to get to. So. You know, have we developed that vision? Where are we? Are, are, are we how, how far along the journey are we to having a vision that everyone can sign up to? We can plot it. We can work out what it, el- what it is we need. Um, and we can actually use it as, a, as an active tool, um, not just as a guide to preparation, but we can actually use it as we're preparing and through the change initiative itself. Because you know, e- even the preparation degree will change over time in relation to, to all of these six components. So I wanted to liken it as an operating system, really, to the sort of operating system that runs on your mobile phone. In the, in the sense that, yes, we we like to use all the applications, but but the, you know the key to all of them working is this almost unseen, unseen sort of machinery of the operating system, which just keeps everything working exactly the way we want it to. So, um, so I think it's a. It's a sort of coherent and a tool that sort of hangs together for for any situation at any time, even when we're not leading a change initiative. I mean, realistically, these things need to be in place, possibly possibly without the opportunity and the, and the specific vision, but the continual gathering of evidence, um, you know, the leadership structures, the, the the trust that needs to be there, and and sort of easy access to those resources. This is a this is a state we need to be in, whether we've got a specific change initiative running or not. Uh, and with the things like the opportunity map and the, and the vision question, which I suppose it should be a question rather than a statement. Um, but these are things we should be able to move to very quickly because we're prepared to do so.
0: I really like the way that in the evidence section of this this part of the book, you you include both data and stories and i think there's a lot to be said for the kind of about the interplay of these things because they can feel sometimes like very opposite you know you've got hard data and soft vague willy stories but actually the stories turn out to be uh, really useful really important and potentially really influential part of what you're doing and
1: we need to tell them and hear them i mean it's really important that you know as leaders we're able to tell stories but but we need to listen to them as well it's a, it's a it's a constant it's a constant dialogue which is right back to the whole idea of perpetual beta which is which relies on a feedback feedback loop that carries forward into the what section of the book when we start to talk about communication um it's a sort of recurrent theme through the book really the importance of open transparent and and regular dialogue with with all those people likely to be sort of subject to our initiative but stories, you know, need need data. Otherwise, they're you know they, they need some data. Uh, it gives them a credibility, gives them a, a reliability. Um, but data needs stories as well. Data on its own is dry. It's you know it's very often uninteresting, and it needs to come to life. So so data and story are you know they need each other um, to be effective. And and really, what we end up with is evidence that is you know we might almost be unable to distinguish between what is data and what is story, because the evidence is emerging as a, a coherent whole.
0: Yes, and I certainly as a recovering physicist myself, I'm becoming much more aware of the power of story. And when you can bring the data and the stories together, you have something that, that's really a, a really good offer to help people think about stuff. And uh, I think that's a, that's a particularly strong element of this. Uh, at at the end of this section um uh neil you 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 talk about moving from uh psychological safety to elemental safety and i think this idea of safety in change is a really interesting and slightly paradoxical topic how do we do that move to towards elemental safety um well i think we i mean psychological safety
1: is sort of trusted a at a group level Uh, and i think we need that trust to enable relations to to be productive and purposeful rather than negative and destructive um so i think the sort of the 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 group level trust is important but i am fascinated by a concept that's 40 years old and we still can't seem to land the term today um it's remained in a sort of you know if, if you were to ask um, you know a workforce of an organization what is psychological safety you'd probably get less than five percent of people who could even have a stab at telling you what it is but actually group level trust is incredibly important so why are we why have we been unable to transfer this idea from academia to to a practical sort of grounded reality that everyone understands recognizes and sees as important in their working relationships and in their organisation? Um, I suggest it's got a brand problem. I think psychological safety just instantly doesn't feel like a workable term. Um, But actually, I think we've really struggled to explain it. So I thought and also very conscious of the fact then certainly in my career and situations I've encountered and what we're seeing now with the COVID era, um, what we've seen with the Me Too movement, that. We treat physical safety as something different. Um, somehow, yes, we, you know, physical safety is something that the facilities team look after, you know, with their with their sort of you know controlled substance registers and things and PPE. But actually, it's become part of you know PPE has become part of everyday life and everybody now knows what it stands for and what it is. Um, so physical safety is just as much part of this. And if we actually think about sort of you know what the Me Too movement grew out of, it was actual threats to physical safety in the working environment which are entirely unacceptable and so i don't think we can distinguish physical safety from from that sort of psychological safety to be able to to be able to sort of hold certain feelings and hold certain views and be able to express them in the workplace in that sort of you know space for safe disagreement without being necessarily you know unduly prejudiced or, or, or or held to task for it um and so all three interplay together. And where I think I'd really like this to get to is it just becomes safety. We don't need an expression before it. If it can encompass how we feel, um, how we express ourselves and how we actually are behaving, then effectively it is just safety. And and I don't think this is anything that should potentially hold back progress, innovation, movement, change. This is something that really should give it the, the the, the ability to move it should all of those moving pieces in front of us our ability to move into those spaces should be enhanced by having that level of safety um, because we are much less encumbered by fear or, or concern we should be able to move straight into straight into
0: that and that's a great idea moving away from these different sorts of safety to, to, to that one over encompassing thing as being important That's terrific, thank you. So now we're moving through the book, uh, Neil, and we're coming to the third part and the final big part of it, which is about action. What are we going to do? And of course, that's something that people involved in change love to rush towards, but I think you've been kind of counselling us to think about it a bit first, perhaps, (laughs) in all these, in in the two sections uh, before that. And we come to these nine elements of change and this is one of the very nice signature bits of, of the book which is this this top this um, group of nine elements of change which looks a bit like a periodic table and tell us about about that and how you decided to do it that way
1: um, the periodic table is something I used in the in the first book um, because it was sort of the, the elemental workplace elements um, interestingly the uh, the one of the sort of managers that was you know run, running my 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 work at the uh, the publishing company was a was a chemical engineer by training and and i was thinking perhaps using a periodic table was a was a bit naff and, and she said well of course you're going to use the periodic table aren't you i was like yeah yeah yes yes of course i'm going to um so that sort of rather convinced me that it was a good idea i think it's i think what's neat about it is it's a it's it's a useful as a checklist um, it's useful as a metaphor because it's something we although we we might not necessarily understand what's going on with a um with a with a, with a periodic table um I, I don't really understand the relationships between sort of vertically and horizontally what we do recognize is the is the format um, and so i've deployed it again not not quite as interesting a pattern or a shape as last time but i've deployed it again because the i think the other thing as well is that what we're saying here is that all of these elements need to be present in a change initiative and we need to dial some up and we need to dial some down given the situation or the circumstances we might be in. But we can't forget about any of them. And with the last book I kept being asked, okay, so there's twelve elements. So, you know, what are the three most important? Because we always want to summarise everything. Um it's like, well actually, no, I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm not happy to do that because what's important in this is that we need to take account of all of these things and i think the same is here with elemental change with the nine elements of change the things we actually do yes we've we've got our infrastructure right our grounding we've 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 got ourselves prepared we're now ready to do some stuff um but we need in some degree or other to do each one of these nine things in leading a change initiative Uh, and and there is a a sort of vertical relationship um in in the in the periodic table the groups um because the first three are about being informed so these revolve around um communication in a broad sense the second around being engaged because that's where our sort of you know emotional connection comes into this and, and the third being around being involved which is you know physically where we're actually going to you know get up out of our chair and we're actually going to go and do something and do something positive that, that, that contributes to this um, and, it, and it's the combination of all of those three. It's not a critical path. These don't. We don't sort of tick them off as we go, because it could be we encourage people to start doing things before we've told them much. Um, they could start doing things in order to get them more emotionally engaged in all of this. So the, the, other, the other useful thing about the periodic table is we're able to sort of move through it, across it, up and down it as we go. Um, I'm not suggesting that there are a series of steps you have to take in order um, to, to, to make your initiative successful
0: and I think that's what makes this book a really interesting and slightly different offer in the change market if I may say so neil this idea of there's these you've got these nine elements uh, and, and and they're all important but you're encouraging us to do a bit of work and, and join them up and, and see how they match up and see how they get deployed but they're not just nine random things there are connections and relationships between them in the way that you you present you presented in the book, which is, I think, fascinating and revealing. And I think it's it's well worth a uh, a look for anyone who's interested in keeping up on the, the very latest in change uh, at both a high level uh, of principle and uh, a detailed level of practice. Um, so that we've been talking about elemental change, making stuff happen when nothing stands still by Neil Usher. Published by, is it LID Publishing or LID Publishing? I'm not uh, sure. I LID. think
1: they just call it LID. I'm sure it stood for something uh, in, in the early days, but it's it's just become LID now. Uh,
0: uh, LID Publishing, uh, $12.99 in the UK, $19.95 in the US. Uh, probably available at a discount online if you shop around. Uh, Neil, what are you working on now? What's your next thing having got this book done?
1: Um, I have to say this, the, the, the first book was, um, I'd kind of just, it was like, 25 years of experience and i just i just sat down over six weeks and and just just wrote it really um this one took a lot more thinking about was written sort of you know i did i didn't have the, uh, the the same experience as the first one where i was sitting in sort of monastic silence in a room for six weeks this one was written in amongst everything else going on um and went on lots of little sort of um tangents and journeys as i as, as i did in putting it together so i think i'm a bit um <laughs> bit exhausted from the emotional experience of writing this one um, and it was and it was you know it, writing is more emotional than most people I think recognize a lot of the time um and and so I'm I'm enjoying the conversations I'm having with people um no, no intent to write another one for a period of time um I think I just want to to I mean, and, and also sort of publishing a book is there's probably a year or two of those sorts of you know discussions like we're having now those sort of interactions people getting a chance to read it asking questions um one of the things i found with the first book is i met a hell of a lot of people as a result of writing it you know, people who picked it up were interested my favorite story was actually going to to pitch um with the company i'm working for now go space and we, we went to pitch to a cfo of a large um multimedia company and um And I took a book with me, you know, as I was sort of quite keen to do in the early days as a kind of calling card, really. And I slid it across the table to the CFO. And he said, it's okay, I've already got a copy. And I have some questions. And he opened his notebook. And there was a whole page of questions on my book, because he'd read it all, which I thought was fantastic. And I thought, that's just the sort of interactions I'd always hoped for from something like this, or beyond what I'd hoped for, really. But with COVID, I still haven't, unfortunately, I still haven't Ticked one little box that I want to, which is one day I want to bump into someone on a tube train reading one of my books, and that that will just be the like the that will, that will just be one of those things that I thought, gosh, w- wouldn't that be amazing if that actually happened? Um, hasn't happened yet. We've been died almost a whole year of travelling on the tube as a result of just that sort of chance of it happening. But I'd love to be able to go over and say, excuse me, I wrote that. Do you want to have a chat? That would just be tremendous.
0: Wow. Well, look, thanks so much, Neil, for joining us on New Books Network. Today, uh, once again, Elemental Change, Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still. Uh, a fascinating read. And Neil, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. Delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you, everyone. Cheers for now.